Welcome back to The Profits Project, after a bit of an unplanned break. This installment is going to be a little longer than the previous ones because of the two stories that I'd like to tell. Now, the fourth chapter of the Book of Yeshua is a seemingly unremarkable narrative, especially when compared with chapter 3. In chapter 3, we looked at the story of the miraculous crossing of the Jordan River, the beginning of this moment of entry of the people into their promised land, of their conquest of their promised land. Here in the fourth chapter, the main topic we're going to address is an act of memorialization of that miracle, of the splitting of the river. What's interesting to me about memorializations is that these are acts that are by their nature symbolic. Perhaps in the last chapter we read a more important part of the story, but in this chapter, we're going to read the way that the characters, the participants in the story, tell it to the future generations. So after explaining a little bit about what happens in the fourth chapter, I'm going to tell two stories, two historical moments, that I feel are significant to understanding this chapter. The first story, like in my previous installments, has a deliberate direct reference to an image from this chapter. But my second story actually is going to be different than what I've done in the past. I'm going to tell something which I feel is important to understanding this chapter, but does not deliberately refer to it. You'll see what I mean when we get there. First, let's go to the text. The fourth chapter of Yoshua begins just as the nation has finished crossing the Jordan River. God commands Yoshua to select 12 men, one from each tribe, and that these 12 men should take 12 stones from underneath where the Kohanim were standing in the river as the people crossed. These men were to then bring the stones over to the new camp on the western bank. So Yoshua selects the men and he delivers the order, explaining to them that these stones will be an eternal symbol of commemoration. He tells them that one day their children will see these stones and they're going to ask, what's this all about? And they're going to be able to tell their children that the waters of the Jordan River stopped in their place and they split when the Aron, when the Ark of the Covenant, came into the river. What's interesting also is that at the end of the chapter, when God repeats this message, the details are a little bit different. In God's telling, the, the river didn't split for the Aron. The river split for the people, just as, it, just as the Yamsuf, the Red Sea, had split for the people on their way out of slavery in Egypt, in the book of Shemot. In this telling, the river, the forces of nature yield to God's chosen people, in order to display his strength and his superiority to the world. So the people follow his instructions, follow Yoshua's instructions, and they take these 12 stones and they set up a memorial in their new camp in Gilgal. Meanwhile, Yoshua takes an additional 12 stones and he puts them in the place where the first 12 stones had been. He replaces them. And there he sets up another memorial within the river, which is not what God had commanded him. So then, after all the people had crossed over the river and to the western side, the ark, the Aron, was also brought out. After that, 40,000 armed men from the tribes of Reuven, Gad, and half of the tribe of Menashe advanced, ready for battle, ahead of the rest of the people. They did this in accordance with their agreement that they made with Moshe in the 32nd chapter of Bamidbar in the Torah. That agreement said that in exchange for their receiving their own territory on the eastern bank of the Jordan, where the people are now coming from, 
they would have to prove their dedication. They'd have to advance ahead of the rest of the people and fight to conquer the new land on the western side. So here, in what was probably an atmosphere of euphoria and of gratitude, Yehoshua's stature as a leader was exalted in the eyes of the people, just as God had promised that it would be in the last chapter. Now God tells Yehoshua to command the Kohanim to come up out of the river, and he does so, and they do so, and the waters of the river return to their natural state. At the close of the chapter, the people are now safely in their camp in Gilgal. So let's stick with the story of the memorial of the 12 stones. God announces that the miracle of splitting the Jordan is going to be remembered with stones, and Yoshua on his own puts another 12 stones in the river. So I'm going to present to you two historical moments, and I'm going to do that out of historical order uh, to begin with the story that actually has a deliberate reference to the chapter. First, I'd like to introduce you to a world that I know almost nothing about, the world of Christian alternative metal. In the year 2000, four Christian rockers got together in a suburb of New Orleans. They put together a band. Within just a year and a half, they had themselves a record deal with Wind Up Records based in New York. These four guys called themselves 12 Stones. Under the direction of their lead man, Paul McCoy, 12 Stones put out four studio albums and 14 singles between 2002 and 2012. And they've done pretty well. Five of their tracks have made it into the top 50 in Billboard's mainstream rock category. Two of their tracks have made it into the top 10 in Billboard's Christian rock category. One of those is a number one hit on the Christian rock category, Worlds Collide, which is what you're hearing right now. In addition, the music of 12 Stones has been used in promotional materials for WWE Judgment Day, for three hockey teams, the Philadelphia Flyers, the Washington Capitals, and the Detroit Red Wings, for the World's Strongest Man competition, and for the Tiger Woods PGA Tour 2003 video game. In addition, they've also been on movie soundtracks, including The Scorpion King in 2002, Daredevil in 2003, and the 2006 trailer of Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest. The song you're hearing now, Anthem of the Underdog, was featured in the NASCAR 2011 video game, and also in two mixed martial arts movies, and you can't make this stuff up, in the 2008 MMA movie called Never Back Down, and in the 2009 MMA movie called Never Surrender, the two of which are actually not a series, not related in any way. So 12 Stones assuming it's a biblical reference, could be a reference to a number of things, perhaps to the 12 stones of the Choshen, the breastplate worn by the Kohen Gadol. But I came across a quote in an interview given by Paul McCoy, the lead man himself, reported in a 2003 book called Faith, God, and Rock and Roll by Mark Joseph. McCoy said, The name actually is a biblical reference from the Old Testament book of Joshua. It represents the 12 tribes of Israel and their protection. So, sounds about right to me. Sounds like he's referring to the memorial in the fourth chapter of Yehoshua. It is a little curious to me that McCoy refers to God's protection of the tribes as the theme of this miracle. Unlike the splitting of the Amsu, in this case, the people isn't fleeing from their enemies when the water is opened up for them. But still, I can understand how, how a reader can see divine protection as an important message of a great display of miraculous providence like this one. So the second historical moment 
I want to present to you is a difficult, painful story set on the Jordan River. And like I said before, I'm going back in history now. Um, specifically, when we're talking about the Jordan River, there is a spot up near the northern terminus of the river where it spawns a tributary river called the Yarmouk in Hebrew, or the Yarmouk in Arabic. You can see a relationship between the names of the rivers, the Arden and the Yarmouk. So at this site where the Arden and the Yarmouk intersect, or where the Yarmouk begins, there is a village for which the old Arabic name is Bakura, and the pre-state of Israel Zionists who settled in the area called it Naharayim, Hebrew for two rivers. In 1932, a hydroelectric power plant was constructed at Naharayim under the direction of the Russian-born Zionist leader and entrepreneur Pinchas Rutenberg, founder of the Palestine Electric Company. This plant supplied most of the power used by mandatory Palestine between 1932 and the war in 1948 when the state of Israel was born. Ultimately, the plant was destroyed in battle in 1948. During the construction, back in 1932, there were dams and canals formed to facilitate the, the function of the power plant. As a result of these dams and canals, a little man-made island was formed in the middle. Now let's fast forward ahead to 1994. As I mentioned in the last installment, Israel and Jordan signed their first peace treaty in 1994, initiated by Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. We are commemorating his 20th yurt site, the 20th anniversary of his assassination this week, and by Jordanian King Hussein. So as part of the terms of this treaty, Israel ceded control of the Naharayim area to Jordan. However, Jordan allowed the Israeli farmers of Kibbutz Ashtot Yaakov, who had previously had private ownership of land on this island and attended to land on this island to continue doing so and to continue farming the land. And what happened was this really unique moment in the history of Israeli-Arab relations. There was now an island under Arab sovereignty where Israeli Jews had private property rights and farmed the land. So a trilateral Israeli-Palestinian-Jordanian environmentalist NGO called Friends of the Earth Middle East really liked this story. And they spearheaded a project to form a peace park on the island. The island now became known as the Island of Peace, in Hebrew, I Hashalom, and in Arabic, Jazirat as -Salam. Three years later, in March 1997, a group of 7th and 8th grade girls from a religious Zionist school in Beit Shemesh are on a field trip in the north. On the afternoon of March 13th, their trip heads toward the Island of Peace. Shortly after, the 80 or so girls disembark from their bus and are being explained the story of the island. One of the Jordanian soldiers stationed there, Corporal Ahmed Dakamsa, opened fire on the girls with his M16, killing seven of them and wounding six more. The seven who died were Sivan Fatihi, Karen Cohen, Ya'ala Meiri, Shiri Badaev, Natali Alkalai, Adi Malka, and Nirit Cohen. All of them were 13 and 14 years old. After killing seven and wounding six, Takamsa's rifle jammed. At that point, he was tackled and subdued by the other soldiers. He was arrested and tried and convicted, sentenced to life in prison with hard labor. 
the Jordanian court announced that he was spared the death penalty because he was diagnosed with a mental illness. What's interesting to me is that in my reading about this story, the part of it that's most remembered and most celebrated is what happened immediately after the tragedy on the island. King Hussein, the same King Hussein who had invaded Israel in 1967 and made peace with Israel in 1994, cut short his visit to Spain and flew straight to Israel. He traveled to Beit Shemesh and visited each of the seven Shiva homes of the seven girls who were killed. In each home, he apologized to the family of the girl on his knees on behalf of his people. He also visited the hospital where the six wounded girls were recuperating, apologized to them as well and to the state of Israel and offered to pay all of their medical expenses. For a time after this, King Hussein's gesture deeply moved the Israeli public, much of which was becoming disillusioned with the state of the peace process during this turbulent time in the late 1990s. And I can tell you from personal experience that once when I was on a tiul, when I was on a trip that visited the island of peace as the yeshiva student, the tour guide, who from the rest of the trip it was very clear that he was not typically friendly to the Arabs of the region or to the left-wing narrative of the region, told this story about the king's visit with a sense of appreciation and respect. It almost seems that this moment, which began with a terrible tragedy, became one of the most hopeful times in the history of the Israeli-Arab peace process. Still, it's important to say that the king, upon his return to Jordan, was criticized in the national media. Although a majority of the public opposed the killings, there was a large vocal minority that supported it. The killer was publicly defended in some of the media as a hero, and the king was especially criticized for prostrating himself before Israeli Jews. In 2011, Justice Minister Hussein Mijali, who is a young anti-peace process figure who came to power through the force of the Arab Spring, called for the release of Dakamse. The Israeli foreign ministry reacted to this statement with shock, and the Jordanian foreign ministry replied by retracting Mijali's statement for him and announcing that it was not the position of the government. Even more recently, in 2013, in the Jordanian House of Representatives, 110 out of the 120 members of the House signed a petition demanding that the King Abdullah, the son of Hussein, pardon Dakamse. However, the king has refused and continues to do so. Back in Israel, shortly after the massacre, at the initiative of a social activist named Orna Shimoni, a memorial was constructed for the seven killed girls near Naharaim on the Israeli side. This memorial consists of seven large, tightly packed mounds of dirt, each of them bearing the name of one of the seven girls spelled out in flowers. Now, I understand this memorial consists of dirt mounds, not stones, and there are seven of them, not twelve. But when I see the image of this memorial, and when I saw it in person, I can't help but think of Yehoshua's memorial in the fourth chapter. The image of this memorial is provided for you as the image of this installment of the podcast. And there you'll see these seven prominent round mounds arising out of the earth on the western bank of the Jordan, 
calling the attention of future generations to the astounding event that took place there. Now, I'm not suggesting that this reference to the memorial of the fourth chapter of Yeshua was intentional or even that it was subconscious. But I will say that regardless of what the planners of this memorial thought, this new display following a new, more tragic crossing of the Jordan River to me is a sequel of sorts to the display in the fourth chapter of Yehoshua. Thank you, that's all for today. Please join me next time for chapter 5, in which I'll address the mass circumcision ritual and the appearance of an angel who confronts the...